Word Radio On Demand, 96.1 FM and 900 AM WURD. Streaming live at wordradio.com. I'm very pleased to be joined by Rebecca Subar. Subar is a former board member of Jewish Voice for Peace, has taught peace and conflict studies at Westchester University, and is a social change strategist and consultant and colleague of mine at Dragonfly Partners, uh, author of the book, When to Talk and When to Fight, The Strategic Choice Between Dialogue and Resistance, and a good friend of mine. Welcome to Solutions, Rebecca. Thank you, Amadi. It's really good to be here. Thank you for agreeing to be on. Um, I was teasing up before before the break, um, just the kind of broad contours of the situation as it's continuing in Israel and Gaza. Um, and you are somebody who I look to to on these issues because of your own personal experience, but also your political orientation as uh, an anti-Zionist Jew who has been active, um, actively speaking out against and organizing against uh, Israeli apartheid. Um, and I just want to start with with that, you grew up in an Orthodox Jewish household where support of Israel was a given. And I think in many Jewish households um, that I know of, that that has been the case. What led you to your anti-Zionist identity now? I mean, you've had that identity for, for quite a while. Yeah, Um I I like I like that you're asking me for like something about where I come from, because it's an easier way in for me to talk about Israel and Palestine. Um, because growing up Jewish, I had a very warm family life. Um, religious practice was a fairly positive thing in my life. It wasn't that cool. I went to public school for most of my life. Um, but there was like the Jewish state connection with Israel and prayers involved a lot of song and a lot of community and a lot of family. And they were all things that felt very warm. They were like the best of what I think uh, um, uh, religion and family life and community can offer. Um, But I also was the fourth kid. And I don't know if any listeners can relate to this, but I think my parents were paying a little bit less close attention um, than they did to my older three siblings. And if maybe they weren't watching that closely, I was maybe a little bit more rebellious, challenging authority. And I had a lot of doubts and questions because I didn't live in a devout community. I lived in, it was a small community of religious Jews. And when I was 25, I wound up, I had, you know, I was raised, I identify as a, as a queer person more than a woman. Mm-hmm. And, Yet, um, and I'm not straight now, but when I was 25 years old, I found myself um, married to an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. I was a wife and I had two babies. And for better or worse, it was a it was a, it was not a good marriage. She was an abusive husband. And um, that was my that was my lever out. That was my opportunity um, to discover myself. And I left the Orthodox community and Orthodox practice. And that was almost 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I rethought everything. And one of the things that I, that I re- it was so natural for me to ask myself, like, 
you know, I was, I was a little bit lost socially. I'm like, who am I? Um, but one question that was fairly easy for me to ask was, I have such a strong attachment to Israel. Um, and I also think that the idea of a state like Iran or Israel that's defined by one particular religion or ethnicity, it's just wrong to my American sensibility. You know, I like, I believe in democracy. And I think that everybody should be equal. And we struggle to make that happen in any country and obviously in this one in the US. But in Israel, the struggle is um, around even acknowledging that that should be a struggle um, between Palestinian Arabs and Jewish Israelis. And so at that time, when I was 25, I was like, well, now I get to think whatever I want. And that's what I decided to think is an ethnically defined state is not okay. Mm, mm, mm. Um, you know, we, we talk about this on this show, we've talked about, as we've been discussing what's happening right now um, with this Israeli bombardment of Gaza and the, you know, the Hamas attack on October 7th, uh, we, we've discussed Israel as a settler colonial state and, and an apartheid state. And you've, you have spent time there um, and you have, you know, you have people there. Um, can you talk about a little bit about the context of the Israeli-Palestinian territory from your vantage point and lay out some basics? Because, I mean, people talk about, you know, in the mainstream media, we hear the Palestinian territories, the West Bank, Gaza, um, what does that mean? What are the conditions that Palestinians are living in? Obviously, we see what's happening in Gaza. Um, and we've heard about it as this like, you know, densely populated, and now it's being destroyed, but densely populated area. Um, but I think for people who have never been there, everything feels very abstract. So what yeah. would you share? Wow, well, would it be helpful if I just kind of like, Broke down what the land was. What's sure. what? So Palestine, um, the Ottoman Empire, the Turks ran things until World War One, and then the land in the Middle East got split up. And I'm sure listeners, if you're like me, you know a lot of pieces of this from school or from history, and then it's hard to sometimes put them all in a line. Mm -hmm. um, and I can't do that about most parts of the world, but I can about Palestine, Israel. So there's this part of the Middle East, which extends from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River. Jordan River is a boundary with the country of Jordan. And the Mediterranean Sea, we all know because the Mediterranean Sea has Italy and Greece and France and Spain and North Africa, including Tunisia and Egypt and Libya and Algeria and Morocco. I don't know if I got it 100% right, but something like that. And on the eastern side, when you go like Europe and then North Africa, Palestine, Israel, Palestine is what you pass when you turn that corner. It's on the east side of the Mediterranean. So it's long and skinny. And at the top is Lebanon and Syria and at the bottom is Egypt and kind of Saudi Arabia. 
And Israel's like the size of New Jersey, this, this, this piece of land. But sometimes I'm calling it Israel, and sometimes I'm calling it Palestine, and sometimes I'm calling it Israel-Palestine because of the history and because of the politics. In After the Ottoman Empire left and, and the, the British Empire won it in the negotiations after World War I, this land, along with Jordan, was was kind of owned and operated by um, Britain, by the United Kingdom. And Great Britain, I guess, was called at the time. And um, the whole land, and it was majority Palestinian Arabs, but there were people from a lot of other places living there, and there was a small population of Jews living there. And um, none of them can necessarily trace. Well, there's small groups of them who could trace their communities till like when you start hitting Jesus time and biblical times. But that's kind of sketchy because who knows what we know about history that's that old. So a lot of people claim that they've been here for many, many hundreds of years. And that's true. Mostly Palestinian Arabs. I have family members who been there for thou- uh, hundreds of years um, along one one line. And when the Brits were there, think about it. It's like this is after World War One. This is the 20s, the 30s. And um, there was a lot of sketchy stuff happening to Jews. And in mm-hmm. Eastern Europe, the Jews were beginning to face the Nazis and Hitler. And um, Jews who became refugees who were looking for a place to go to escape Nazism um, were turned away from famously from the United States and lots of other countries that we might have thought were be friendly to European Jews. That is not how it went down. And people like um, my dad's dad's side of the family, a lot of people had already been escaping Eastern Europe because of anti-Semitism many years earlier. And they had moved to the Holy Land. My family had moved to Jerusalem. But this whole land still had a minority of Jews in it. And during World War II and afterwards, a lot of Jews ran boats through British blockades. Some of them, the British let into Palestine. But a lot of Jews were like, hey, this would be a cool place to go. Now, some of them, like my relatives, had come from like a religious fervor kind of a place. Palestine had a lot of... That, you know, there were there were some distant relatives, and they had a religious commitment to the land. Um, but when more waves came, who had been part of political Zionism, and political Zionism was a movement that started in the late 1800s in Eastern Europe, um, and a um, where oppressed people were in large part or many, many non-religious Jews um, got connected to revolutionary movements and they got connected to um, socialism and communism and they got connected to a lot of, a lot of leftist kind of movements. And um, they were kind of looking to figure out how to live in a way that would be sustainable for Jews. And so some of them had a socialist dream of finding a place to live that wasn't Europe, that wasn't um, anti-Semitic. So that's part of the background. Others became part of this very organized Jewish movement that some clever 
organizers were kind of like, you know, mm, there's there's these colonies that the Brits have and that the Americans have and that the Portuguese have and the Spanish have and the French have. And the model of going to a place where there are resources and where there's land and where the people who live there are probably too weak to fight back, that could be a pretty cool place for Jews to figure out, you know, to find, to have a home. That's a long story that I'm not going to tell, but mm -hmm. there were moments when these movements looked for places other than Palestine and they landed on Palestine. And then when the Holocaust, World War II against Jews and gays and people with disabilities and Poles all happened, a lot of Jews left and tried to come to Palestine. And I've already explained that. So where they were coming to at this point wasn't a friendly place that they were going to move into where they would still be minority Jews in, in a majority Arab place. But it, it actually was um, a refuge, a refuge for a lot of Jews and the people with the political plan among the Jews actually started buying land from Palestinian Arabs who lived there. So far, I've been telling you about the whole place. It really was one big place. And in 1947, and we the, have so just about a minute before our, our, our next okay, break. Great. So this is a good stopping place in, you know, as the Jews took over more political power, they started organizing to buy land from Palestinians and it was a lot like what gentrification looks like. It's kind of hard to resist if you really are living on very little. And so um, there started to be a lot of tension, ethnic tension between Arabs and Jews over the years. The Brits took one side, then they took the other side. And finally, in 1947, the United Nations decided, put, put forward a plan, which was to split the land and there would be a Jewish state and there would be an Arab state. And after the break, I can explain how the land got split up. Good cliffhanger. You're listening to Solutions on WURD, 900 AM, 96.1 FM, and online at wordradio.com. This is Amadi Braxton talking with Rebecca Subar. We'll be right back. You're listening to Solutions exclusively on Word Radio, 96.1 FM and 900 AM WURD. Welcome back to Solutions on WURD, Progressive Black Talk Media on air and online at wordradio.com. This is Amadi Braxton. I'm back with Rebecca Subar talking about a little bit about the history of Israel and Palestine the um, and the kind of historical context for the current situation we find our, we're finding ourselves in. Um, Rebecca, you kind of left us with a cliffhanger about um, the formation of the state of Israel in 1947. Um, why don't you pick up where you left off? Yeah, so the United Nations partition plan in 1947 called for these two states, and it was kind of Swiss cheese. It wasn't a tidy split like... I don't know, like it wasn't a straight line. It was just kind of messy. Um, and I don't know if it ever would have stuck. But one thing that was very noteworthy about it was that in the United Nations plan, Jerusalem was to be a universal city. It was supposed to be a single undivided city that was run by its own authority and didn't belong to the Palestinian Arab state and didn't belong to the Israeli Jewish state. So 
um, boy, that's a dream that would be amazing to bring back. So there, there are three other dates, three other things that happened that split the land up. One was after the UN partition plan passed, there was a war between the um, essentially um, guerrilla armies of the Palestinian Jews. Of course, remember, there was no Israel until 1948, but the, the war that made Israel exist um, in 1948 um, between um, the Arab states that surround Israel, Palestine, and the Palestinian Jews, um, that war in that war, the what soon to became the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, but before that, the, you know, like an informal non-state, like guerrilla warriors, mm-hmm. um, they um, they captured more land than the UN partition plan had called for. So the Palestinian Arabs were pushed into sort of famously, there's somewhere between 700,000 and a million Arabs were pushed out of their homes in Palestine. And by Palestine, I'm referring to the whole place. And you know, when I say Israel, I'm also referring to the whole place, same mm-hmm. place, right? But after this, there became four zones. There, there were three zones. One zone was the West Bank, which was someone took a big bite out of Palestine on the right-hand side, and that's the West Bank of the Jordan River. On the East Bank is the country of Jordan. And so the West Bank of the Jordan River was owned and operated by Jordan. The Gaza Strip, which we probably all seen on a map, which is like the left-hand southwest corner, a very, very thin, just a few miles long strip, 10, 12 miles long and a couple mi- few miles wide strip on the, on the southwest, that was run by Egypt. And then the rest of what was left became Israel. So that was number one. Here's a new country inside of Palestine. 1967, there was another war um, between Israel and Egypt, Syria, and Jordan. And that left um, Israel occupying the West Bank and Gaza and also taking a bite out of Syria called the Golan Heights. And to this day, you can think of those four zones as part of the greater Israel-Palestine. There's what we call Israel, which Palestinian Arabs, I'll refer to as Palestinians, they call that 48. Mm -hmm. There's the West Bank, which the Palestinians call 67. (laughs) There's the Golan Heights that Israel still has settlements in. And then there's the Gaza Strip. In 2005, Israel unilaterally left the Gaza Strip, took all of the Jewish settlements that had settled between 1967 and 2005, and they left the Gaza Strip. But Israel kept their armies around Gaza. Egypt's at the bottom, and we all know that Israel's around the other sides. And there have been several wars in that in-between time. Israel will claim that it doesn't occupy Gaza, but it really occupies all four of those zones in one way or another. Can you say a word about the the Israeli settlements and why that's so why the, the role that they have played in this ongoing struggle? So there are the Israeli settlements in Israel in the Israel part, right? Of Israel Palestine. And they've been there since 
like I was saying, the late 1800s and then more in the 20th century. Um, and most of the world doesn't use the word settlements, but really when you think of white people in the U.S. and Canada, we often use the word settlers now because we know that white people in the U.S. and Canada were European settlers and there were people here, indigenous people here, and there were people who were brought here in as slaves, enslaved people. And that story is um, this similar story to Jewish Europeans, even though they were leaving. It's, so it's kind of a double bind for Jews because they're leaving because of oppression. But so it, technically those are settlements too. When we usually talk about Israeli settlements, we're referring to them in the other three areas, the West Bank, where there are still uh, – close to a half a million Jewish settlers living among two million Palestinian Arabs with different roads, different systems, different economic class, different access to water, different voting systems, the same money. There's Gaza, where there were Jewish settlements built long ago and also between 1967 and 2005. Um, that man that I was married to and my First baby and I lived in the Gaza Strip for eight months as settlers. So I, another time we talk about that. Um, and then there's the Golan Heights, which has Jewish settlements too, which, you know, which had been part of Syria and they still live there. And most Israelis and most U.S. governments don't even bother thinking about them as settlers. They're just Israelis at this point. And the expansion of the settlements, Israeli settlements into what was designated Palestinian territory has been a, a, a thorn in the side of, of, of any kind of peace process, it seems. And I think it's worth saying that um, the Palestinians who were refugees, the 700,000 to a, to a million who were forced out of um, what we call Israel into the West Bank and Gaza and Lebanon – and Syria are now 14 million people, a diaspora of 14 million people, and 7 million of them live in Israel-Palestine. 7 million Jews live in Israel-Palestine, and um, the Palestinian diaspora includes people, for the most part, who one of our other Dragonfly colleagues whose families refer to themselves as refugees, Palestinian refugees, because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's what they are. Yeah. Well, we're just kind of getting into the to the thick of this conversation, and I have to let you go because it is Hanukkah, second night of Hanukkah tonight, and you you have a, a ceremony and ritual to do with your family. It's true. I took the good stuff out of Jewishness, the fun stuff, um, left behind the Zionism and the devout religious practice and the beliefs, but... I do like to light candles in the dark. And if we never had to do it before now, we certainly need to do it now. And here's hope for the lives of everybody who's imperiled there. Um, and a hope for a ceasefire. Um, and a hope for the um, just terrible, terrible genocide that's happening to Palestinian people in Gaza to be over soon. And for there to be peace someday. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're going to have to have you back for uh, parts two, three, and four of this conversation. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for, for being on. Thank you, Amadi. Uh, happy Hanukkah. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. 
You've been listening to Word Radio On Demand. Listen live at 96.1 FM, 900 AM, and online at wordradio.com.